Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So in American history and culture, we have our famous war heroes from the Civil War, from the Revolutionary War, World War I and World War II. Um, these were men who were celebrated for their acts of bravery in the battlefield, people like Sergeant York, George Washington, etc. But it seems like these two most recent wars we've been involved in, um, the Afghanistan War and the war in Iraq, we don't really have those sort of superstar heroes. But the thing is, there's some really heroic things going on. There's some men who are doing just amazing things in just dire situations. And uh, our guest today wanted to find out why that is, and he wanted to correct that. His name is Mark Lee Greenblatt, and he is the author of the book Valor, Unsung Heroes from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Homefront. And in today's podcast, Mark and I talk about like why don't we know more about some of these, these brave men who are uh, fighting overseas um, and some of the things that they've done. And then we talk about some of the, the men that he writes about in his book and what they did and their acts of bravery and valor that they displayed. And then we also talk about what lessons we can learn from these men. So it's, it's a fascinating podcast. I hope you tune in. It's going to be a good one. Mark Greenblatt, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Brett. I got to tell you before we start that I am such a huge, huge fan of the art of manliness. Uh, I listen to podcasts all the time. Steve Pressfield's uh, interview was great about the uh, you know turning pro and the Battle of Thermopylae and everything like that. It's just this is great. This is one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, things to listen to. So uh, it's a real honor to be on. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm very humbled. Um, so your book is called Valor, Unsung Heroes from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Home Front. Um, first off, what inspired you to write this book? Well, back in 2007 and 2008, I went to these awards banquets where they honored military heroes, and they would recite the stories of what these men and women had done, and they were just unbelievable. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was not a dry eye in the, in the house when in, in, at these big gala events. Everyone's crying about how amazing, how inspirational they were. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, how come no one knows these guys? How come, you know, they'll be lucky to be bagging groceries if they get a job in the first place? Um, you know, whereas in the past, 
you know, war heroes came home and they were household names and, and, and they, we had ticker tape parades for them in, in their communities. And we really had gotten away from that. And I set out to, to change that. I said, these people, you know, we need to know their stories. We need to know their names. And that was really the moment when I said, this is, this is, uh, this is something I've got to do. So um, why do you think I was, I was wondering that too, is as I was reading these stories of these men, um, in combat, I kept on wondering, like, why haven't I heard about these, like these guys? Cause you, you hear, there's a few that I know about, but for the most part, I, I don't know. Like, and like back, you're right. Like back in world war one and world war two world, uh, war heroes were household names, like audio, they even make movies about them, like during the actual war while the war was still going on, ticker tape parades. So why is it that these past two wars, the one in Iraq and Afghanistan, failed to produce the superstar war heroes? Because it's not anything that the men have done. Like, they're doing heroic things, but something's going on on the home front that's not not allowing that to happen. Right. I, I think it generally boils down to, to two, maybe more factors, but the two that pop into my mind instantly are politics and, and, and the the focus of the media, frankly. Um, you know, these, these wars were generally very political, uh, particularly Iraq. And, uh, you know, if you think back to those days, 2005, 2006, 2007, those are dark days, I think, in American history, uh, particularly when you talk about the wars. And uh, the the debate was really frenzied and really nasty, and amidst that, uh, amidst that turmoil, I think stories of selflessness became passe. You know, heroes um, were sort of old news, and and it was sort of romanticized to go the other way and find the stories that were bad. Um, and that was the balance that I was trying to fix. I felt that it had gotten out of whack. That people people would know. Uh, very few American soldiers uh, who were serving overseas, and the few that they did know uh, were for bad reasons, like Lindy England in the Abu Ghraib scandal, uh, or for controversial reasons, like you know Pat Tillman or um, Jessica Lynch. Uh, we had no one that was just like Audie Murphy or Sergeant York in, in World War I. Um, and that was exactly the void I was trying to fill. And the other thing was the media. I think there was um, showing these kinds of stories, these positive stories, uh, were viewed in the media as being biased in favor of the war and, and sort of propping up the Bush administration at a time when that was, uh, I think, very passe. Um, and so I think that was, those two things really created an atmosphere where stories of heroism just got lost. Yeah. Do you think we're also, as a culture, uncomfortable with violence for good purposes? I mean, even if it's used for good, uh, do you think we're sort of uncomfortable kind of lauding, you know, war exploits? I think that's a part of that. Um, you know, I would say that there's violence all around us. I mean, you've looked at movies and uh, and video games. That, you know, in a way, we've become desensitized to, to that sort of violence. Um, but uh, I think there's also another factor that might be at play, which is that we have a bit of a disconnect uh, between the folks who serve and their families and the folks who don't. Um, and I think that disconnect, you know, ba- back in the day, uh, everyone knew you know, someone who was serving, uh, you know, it was either the guy down the block or someone in your own family. Um, whereas now I think there's a chasm between those who are serving and those who, who aren't. Um, and so those folks don't have it in front of them and, and, and aren't so committed to knowing these stories and publicizing these stories. And so I think that's a third factor, um, that, that really goes into why these names are not, you know, 
household names like like in years past. Okay, I think I remember reading, and maybe I'm I read this incorrectly, but do we give fewer medals for valor during the two most recent wars than we did in previous wars? And if so, why yeah. is that? Yeah, I don't know about in toto, um, you know, in terms of all of the medals, uh, but certainly with respect to the Medal of Honor, which is the one that gets the most notoriety, I mean, you know, the most attention and, and really kind of sh- frames, uh, you know, the perception of these things uh, for in the American public, uh, certainly those are way off. Uh, in, in World War II, I think it was, it was one per 35,000. And in the last two wars, uh, it's something along the lines of one per every 115,000. So it's, it's dramatically different. Uh, and part of the problem is the nature of the battles that we're facing. At least this is what I've read, is that DOD regs say that the Medal of Honor uh, has to involve en- enemy combatants. And so when someone does something heroic in the face of, say, an IED attack, uh, there's no actual enemy combatant. And so for a while, I believe that held up uh, or, or at least uh, uh, skewed the, the Medal of Hon- Medals of Honor, uh, you know, versus in previous combat, uh, and and I think there's there's an effort to change that or review that uh, because that's really kind of changing the changing the numbers and therefore changing the perception of the wars in, in the way that we're talking about. Okay, another thing as I was reading this um, reminded me because before I read Sebastian Younger's War. And then your book reminded me of it is just the tactical difficulty of these two most recent wars. And I don't think a lot of Americans understand uh, what the what our fighting soldiers are facing or what they faced over there and some in some cases still facing today. Um, how were the two most recent wars different from previous wars that we've been in? Well, I think the big thing is is that we're not fighting a known enemy. Uh, in the sense that they're not wearing uniforms um, and they're not using sort of typical battle tactics. Uh, they're just popping up as snipers in the middle of the street and, and using IEDs in a way that I think is different from previous engagements, um, at least on the scale that we're seeing. Uh, and that has, has uh, had a dramatic impact. Um, the, you know, one thing that the impact on the guys is that you can never really let your guard down. Um, you know, we've had so many uh, infiltrations where uh, purportedly friendly uh, forces are then turning their weapons on Americans uh, that, that our guys can't really put their guard down. Uh, so there's no downtime, and and that keeps them on edge for long, long periods of time. Um, and so I think that has, over the long haul, a really detrimental effect. At least what I heard uh, was that it was it, that was really hard, just keeping your your your, your mind engaged uh, at all times. I mean that goes that gets old after a year long you know deployment. Uh, and so I think that change uh, is really having an impact. And that's hurting them when they come back. I think that's very difficult for them to deal with when they come back because they're always on edge, always looking for a long period of time, uh, you know, looking around the corner, looking at that, at that debris in the, in the street, wondering whether that's an IED. Uh, and so when they're walking down the, the street in their hometown, they're reminded of these things. And so it's so constantly on the brain. Uh, and I think that, gets, that, that weighs on them. And that, that really has had a dramatic impact. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I, the Iraq war was a little more a traditional war where there was an you know an army perhaps been like the afghan the war in afghanistan that was just crazy i mean like first off afghanistan is like just a the environment there is just crazy it's one of the most harshest places on earth 
and then you have like these you describe these some of the encounters and they happen in these little small villages that have these winding goat trails and you i mean you you don't you really can't see what's coming at you i mean it just it, it just really uh when i was reading that it's just i couldn't imagine being in those guys's place yeah, that's right. And, and I think the other thing that is, is that, you know, if you think about World War I, World War II, our guys were going over to Western Europe. Uh, you know, they can appreciate Western Europe. They may not speak the language, but they know what, a, you know what a bakery looks like. They know, you know, what's going on, you know, in the streets and the signs. And, you know, they can get some semblance of what's happening. Whereas when you're in a rural village in, in Afghanistan, uh, that is as far away as you can get. I mean, one of the guys that I interviewed described the landscape as like walking on the moon uh you know he was like literally in a different in a different uh you know place in the universe uh from what he was familiar with and i think doing that over and over again with languages that are so different and the cultural experiences are so different i mean they couldn't really relate to the people the goat herders that they were interacting with and i think that really over time just just really weighs on the guys in a way that's different from previous wars where it's, you know, you can understand the terrain better. Your brain is working less actively because you know what the church looks like and that sort of thing. Uh, and so I think that that has another impact as well. So we'll get into um, some of the specific stories here in a bit. But before we do that, what did all the men who you included in your book have in common? Or, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, what traits gave them valor and made them a hero? There are two things that really emerge. Uh, one is this sense of brotherhood, uh, this self selflessness, uh, this this teamwork. It's it's overwhelming when you talk to these guys and the nine that I profiled, but also the other folks that I interviewed, the other men and women in the, you know that were in uh, in the stories. Uh, this sense of brotherhood is unlike anything we see in civilian life. I mean, the the willingness to do anything, literally anything. Uh, to save your buddy, it is just, it's sort of awe-inspiring. And I mean that in the actual, you know, real way. Like, it inspired awe in me that they were so willing to do anything for each other. It was just a fascinating, uh, you know, characteristic that I tried to convey to the readers. I really tried to put them in their minds and, and convey that, just their willingness to do so, because I don't think we can appreciate it. The second thing is, in each of the stories, the men had these moments amidst the maelstrom going on around them where they were in relative safety. And, and what I mean by that is like the bullets weren't firing directly at them. They were inside the, build, uh, inside the building when the, the shots were being fired in the alleyway immediately outside, that sort of thing. But in each of the stories, the heroes decided to put themselves in greater danger. They left that position of relative safety and put themselves in greater danger in order to save a life or accomplish a mission. And that moment was fascinating to me. I had to find out more about that. And so I really slowed down time. Uh, and, you know, I was asking these guys, I mean, minute by minute, second by second, what do you think of men? What's happening then? What's happening then? And tried to place the reader in their bodies, in their minds, as these dire circumstances are unfolding and say, what is making you think about going into that, into the sniper's fire, or jumping into this swirling water in the middle of the Atlantic, in the middle of this horrific storm, you know, what's making you jump in there and do that? Uh, and, and that was just a fascinating moment. And that was what I tried to capture for the readers. Well, you did a good job capturing both the, the brotherhood and why these men 
made the decisions that they did. And yeah, I'll be honest, when you're when I was reading these stories and talking about brotherhood, and something we've talked about on the site before, like talking about honor, right? This idea right. that you you it's all about caring for your brotherhood and you know, being concerned about your status within the group. And that means putting the team before you. And that was another common thread I saw among these guys. Like it was the team before self. That's right. And That's right. Self sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was reading these stories, like I'll admit, like I was like, man, I, I want to sign up just so I can experience that sort of brotherhood. Cause like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that or close to it. Maybe it's something, you know, on a small magnitude, but I, I'm sort of envious in a way of these men who had that experience. I don't envy like the, you know, being in, you know, having to worry about IEDs, but I envy that, that sense of camaraderie and, and brotherhood. And I think a lot of men Absolutely. probably want that in their life too. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, I felt the exact same way. I said, you know, it, it, there's that envy that, you, you know, you're just like, wow, that, that is so captivating that you can be part of something that, that you would literally die for. I mean, that, that is just mind boggling. And, and I, I was so inspired by that. And, and, you know, one of the stories involves a guy named James Hassel who literally carried a, a mortally injured guy through Crossfire. And, you know, both of them said they weren't particularly close. It wasn't like they were best friends. It wasn't like they had grown up together. It wasn't like they were, you know, soulmates or anything like that. But James was like, that's, that's my teammate, and I am not going to let him die. And Chris Kyle, of one of the Navy SEALs, he didn't even know the guy that he saved. And he put himself in extraordinary danger, uh, literally liberating a group of Marines he did not know, you know, and single-handedly pushing off insurgent snipers to, to, to liberate them. I mean, just a captivating moment. And he didn't even know them. Uh, it was just that, that sort of generic uh, team that, that, he, that he was a part of. And, and I just found that just so overwhelming. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the 
criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of that self-sacrifice forces you to, when you're doing something for others, you push yourself beyond your limits, I feel like. Because I feel like in America, at least right now, there's this sort of idea that, oh, I want self-fulfillment. I want to become the best me. And it's all about doing stuff for yourself, right? You do like, you know, you meditate or you exercise, but you don't really do it for anybody else. But like in my experience, when I'm doing something, when I'm trying to serve another person, whether it's my family or the people I write for, like that pushes me beyond what I think I'm capable of. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that, that's borne out in all of these stories. Um, I mean, it's exactly that. They're willing to do more for someone else. One, one of the guys, James Hassel, the, the Marine I was talking about earlier, he said uh, that the fear wasn't dying himself. Uh, you know, he, he, he was sort of over that. Uh, the fear was that he would do something wrong that, or, or not, do, not do enough, uh, and that that would result in someone else, another Marine dying. He said that was the motivation to do anything. It wasn't about himself. He said, if I died, but I saved other Marines in doing so, I would be successful. I would be happy with that. And just a mind-boggling concept. And, and, and that was something that's just so inspiring I and mean, exactly what you're talking about. They're willing to do so much more on behalf of their teammates uh, than, than perhaps even uh, you know, for themselves. 
Yeah, that 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 I that example right there is a perfect example of just traditional honor, right? Like you, it's all about the it's all about the team. That's what it, that's what honor is. And I think and I think in America and in the West, like we most civilians don't understand that sort of honor. Like for us, honor is like integrity, personal integrity. I live by my code, but honor in the sense that what the Romans talked about and what Theodore Roosevelt talked about that still exists in combat today. That's it's really cool. Here's a question I have. How did you get these men to open up about their stories? Because most soldiers, particularly ones who have been um, awarded medals or distinctions for combat or for uh, valor, they're very hesitant to talk about it. They're very humble. They'll just say things like, oh, I was just doing my job. But your stories are very detailed, like you said. So how did you get them to, to open up and talk? Well, first of all, I should say, None of them wanted to tell their story. They all said exactly what you're talking about. I'm not a hero. I did what anyone else would have done. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And frequently they said, I'm not the hero. It's the guy next to me that was the hero. So, I mean, it's just stunning how, and they really believe it, by the way. This, this was not some sort of like talking points that they have. Um, they really genuinely believe it. And so they bristle when I would use the term hero. In fact, I frequently would not use the term hero or heroic or anything like that. Um, I would just say, you know, it's pretty cool what you did, you know, <laughs> and can you tell me about it? But, but in order to get them to participate in the project, it was very difficult. I basically had to, you know, beg and plead with them, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and to get them to, to, to tell their story. And what I told them was, and I wasn't, I wasn't you know, playing, uh, playing fast and loose or anything like that. I was very obvious about it. I said, look, you know, these stories need to be told, and, and it's not about you and your story. It's about t- using your story as an example for what everyone's doing, for what all the tens of thousands of men and women are doing overseas. And in order to, 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 to share, spread the word about what all of you are doing, uh, you know, I need to tell some stories, and, and, and you know, yours is one. And, and, uh, and, and I think they, they, they believed in that. Again, it was, it was shifting it away from them as an individual and more about the group. Uh, and they believed in that. And the other thing was that, you know, I told them that I am donating, uh, you know, a significant portion of the proceeds to military and veterans-related charities. So I think that helped them, uh, you know, get over the fact that they were, you know, didn't want to hold themselves out as being exceptional, uh, but they would do it for a better cause, maybe. Uh, so I think that helped. But in terms of like actually sharing the details, um, which I think is part of your question as well, um, is well, I'm, I'm a trained investigator. This is what I do for a living. I'm an attorney, and I conduct investigations, uh, and I've done that for a long time. And so. Uh, these were akin to depositions or, you know, uh, uh, witness interviews that I've done, you know, a large number of times. Um, and so what I, you know, what I did was I treated it like that, uh, where I would, uh, you know, interview them and, 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 you know, drill down into the details uh, and, and extract as much information from them as possible. And one of the guys, one of the guys told his wife, um, you know, this guy doesn't get it. He keeps asking me the same question over and over again. And that's, you know, one of my standard tactics is keep, you know, keep asking, keep asking. There's always more there. Um, and, uh, and, and that was it. It was, it was basically deposing them and, and asking them, you know, difficult questions. And, and I will give them all very you know, huge credit because they all stuck with me. They all answered my questions. They never said no. Uh, they never bristled at the questions. Um, you know, there was a lot of crying. There was, there was a lot of very difficult moments crying by them, crying by me. I was so moved by what they were telling me. Uh, I mean, these stories of, you know, individuals, you know, literally dying in their arms. I mean, you need, you get choked up just, just hearing it. And, uh, 
Uh, it was it was really emotional. Uh, there are also some really funny moments too. I mean, some you know laugh out loud funny moments um, where uh, you know I had to <laughs> I had to uh, stop the recorder for a second because I was chuckling so loud. Um, so uh, anyway, it was it was just a wide range of uh, of emotions. But uh, getting getting the details from them was no easy feat. Let me tell you. Well, I, I, I'm glad you were persistent because uh, I'm yeah, I feel fortunate to to have read these stories. So let's get into. Uh, give people a taste of what's in your book. Are there any stories in particular that stand out to you or were some of your personal favorites? I know it's like picking children, but what's something, what's a story in the book that you were particularly like? Well, yeah, as you said, it, it is like picking children. I, I couldn't possibly, like, you know, folks have asked me, what, do I have a favorite? No. There's, yeah. I mean, I love them all. I, I, and I do actually have some level of love for these guys. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I feel a kinship with them. But there are a couple of stories that are interesting on, on multiple different levels, and I think that's, that's what, what gets me a little bit. Like one guy, Mike Waltz. He uh, was a special forces commander, a reserve special forces commander who was leading a squad in, uh, in a very remote village in Afghanistan. And they had heard word there were insurgents there, and, and Mike had, uh, you know, was leading his squad through the, through the village doing a regular patrol. And, and they had been paired up with an Afghan unit, and Mike had grown to really admire uh, the sergeant major of the Afghan unit, and uh, this guy Sumar. And he really respected him, and he got to know him. And, and you know, he asked Sumar, he said, well, you know, why are you in the army, uh, you know, putting yourself and your family at risk? And he said, you know, essentially that he was doing it so that he could, he could give his children uh, a better life and, 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 you know, have his sons, you know, earn enough money so that his sons wouldn't have to go to the madrasas where they would get fundamentalized, you know, radicalized. And so uh, uh, Mike, you know, grew to love this guy, and it was really interesting, and they developed this, this sort of relationship, even though they were going through an interpreter this whole time. Um, and uh, fast forward, uh, you know, to the next day, and they're on a patrol, and there's an ambush. And, uh, you know, machine guns mowing them down. And Mike stands up and he is literally firing against these two machine guns that are very, very close, essentially point blank range. And Mike is standing there in the middle of this riverbed, shooting back at them with just a pistol. He's not wearing his helmet. He doesn't have any grenades, and he is firing back with a pistol. I mean, it's this, if you get the image in your mind, it's unbelievable. One of, the, one of the, the medic that was in his unit who was standing there watching all this said he, when he looked from his perspective, they were so close that the fire from the machine guns and from Mike's gun were essentially touching. That's how close they were. Wow. And I'm just so captivating this moment. But then here's the part. It gets even better. So Mike eventually... Uh, goes for dives for cover behind this little tiny stone wall. And he saw that Sumar had gotten shot. And so he runs out into the kill zone, right? He, you know, the insurgents could start firing at any moment, but Mike runs out into the kill zone and grabs Sumar, and he's dragging him back into behind this wall, trying to, trying to protect him. And as he's dragging him, Sumar, he hears his last breath. He hears Sumar die in his hands, in his arms. And uh, it was, you know, obviously a tragic moment. Fast forward a bit, they survived the, that firefight. And Mike later heard that Sumar's family had to send their kids to the madrasas because they couldn't afford the other schools. And so Mike, on his own, spending his own money, began to support Sumar's family. He would wire money, he figured out this way to wire money 
to a remote Afghan, Afghan family in order to pull those boys out of the madrasa so that they wouldn't be radicalizing even more kids. And uh, it, it, Mike has been giving them money, you know, for years now, and uh, he's never met them. He just knew Sumar. And I just found that so captivating, not just the fact that he was fighting against these machine guns at essentially point-blank range with a pistol, but that he would do all that. He would run back in and save, try to save Sumar's life and then literally support the family all on his own, his own money. I just found that overwhelming and uh, just so inspiring. Yeah, yeah, I really, that was one of my favorites. Uh, I mean, all of them are great, but that one really uh, uh, touched me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many. So there's how many? There's nine total stories. Nine total. And I could talk about each one of them like yeah. that. I mean, that, that, you know, it just, the, the, the thing about, you know, supporting the family just kind of kicked it up a notch that I, that, you know, if anyone, if folks are going to hear about any one story, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good one to hear about. But I'm happy to talk about the others. I mean, uh, uh, one of the guys we had talked about, James Hassel earlier, and um, Marine Grunt, who was in an awful firefight in Najaf. And uh, one of his comrades, like I said, was it brutally, I mean, awfully injured by uh, shrapnel uh, from one of the insurgents. And uh, they knew he was going to die if they didn't get him to the medevac unit. The medevac unit was about 100 yards down an alley. The problem was there were insurgents shooting directly into that alley. And so they said, we've got to get Ryan out. And James reached his hand up and said, throw him on my back. Throw him on my back. That's what he said, right then and there, no hesitation. And, uh, and that's what they did. And James, as he's about to leave this building, go out into the crossfire, uh, you know, where insurgents are literally shooting right down where he would be running. He fought back to a promise that he had made his mother that he was going to come back to, uh, from Iraq in one piece. And he actually thought to himself at that moment, I'm about to break that promise. He thought he was going to die but he wasn't going to let Ryan die. He was at least going to give it a shot. And that's what he thought as soon as, and just as bad as he's going to run into this, into this alley. And then he goes and uh, he runs down and I try to slow down time and present each step essentially as he's running down this alley. Uh, and uh, long story short, he, uh, you know, he saved Ryan's life. He literally saved Ryan's life by carrying him uh, down down that alley to the helicopter. And, and I had these amazing moments. I had this interview with Ryan about what it was like to be carried on James's back as the bullets are ringing out. And he was pretty sure he was going to die, not just from the shrapnel, but from getting shot. Just the, you know, just the moment of, of when they turned the corner away from the shooting, uh, you know, just this celebratory moment was, uh, was, was pretty cool. It was, uh, it was a pretty, pretty good story. Um, and, uh, you know, as you know, because you've read the book, it's got a bit of a tragic ending. Yeah. Uh, because James, after he left the Marine Corps, uh, came home and uh, at 30 years old, uh, out of nowhere, he just collapsed in his kitchen one day over Labor Day weekend. And uh, tragic, tragic story. He never, he never came to. Uh, and his wife, uh, he's survived by a you know beautiful wife and lovely four-year-old daughter. Uh, it's just a tragic story that he could do something so heroic, so amazing overseas, literally saving lives. Uh, but then he, you know, had his uh, life tragically cut short. And, you know, there's, there's an amazing coda on top of that, frankly, uh, that he was an organ donor. And his wife just told me not too long ago that James's organs were then donated to a number of people. And he, she heard back that his organs actually saved four people's lives 
Wow. So even in, even in death, James Hassel was saving lives. Pretty incredible, pretty inspirational. That's amazing. Well, I mean, we could talk about each of them, but I don't want to, because I want people to go out there and get your book and, and read these stories for themselves. I can imagine that talking to these men and then writing their stories down has changed you. How has writing this book made you a better man? A couple of different ways. There are lessons from these guys, and, and, and I've really tried to incorporate them. One of them is, you know, perspective, frankly. A couple of these guys, I mean, all of them believed they were going to die at some point during, during, their, during the stories that I tell, the incidents that I describe. Um, and I think about, I actually think about what they were going through in, in my moments of stress. And it, they seem so small, so so petty. Uh, there was one guy who, who, Dan Foster, who single-handedly held off an insurgent ambush, ambush of his little remote remote outpost, and 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 he had m- suffered major major injuries. And he looked in a mirror at one point back in the medics' tent, and he saw this awful these awful injuries to his face. He lost thirteen teeth, substantial bone structure in his upper and lower jaws. I mean, it was a disaster. It was awful. But Dan went back into the fight after he saw those injuries in the mirror. And so when I'm having a difficult time with my first world problems, I actually think about the moment that Dan Foster looked in the mirror and went back into the fight. So when, when you ask, how have I tra- you know, changed? How has this improved my life? I think I've gotten some perspective. Where you know, Before, if my Wi-Fi went down, I would get really pissed. But now I, th- I actually think about Dan Foster, and I try to get a bit of perspective on the situation, um, that my problems aren't so bad. And, uh, you know, I think about these guys, Chris Choi, an Afghan, I mean, an uh, uh, Army paratrooper who was in Afghanistan, earned a silver star. At one point did something truly incredible, and he called it the loneliest moment of my life. He thought he was going to die. And, you know, I think about that when some idiot cuts me off in traffic, and I'm about to lose my cool. Uh, I actually think about Chris Choe, about how he didn't lose his cool in the loneliest moment of his life when he thought he was going to die. And he then proceeded to do something incredible and heroic. I actually try to think about those guys and, and incorporate their, you know, their experiences in my life uh, to make me a better person. And I think that's a good lesson for all of us, frankly. A bit of perspective really will kind of make you, you know, reduce the stress you know, make things, you know, roll like water off a duck's back uh, a bit more in our lives. Very good. Well, our, our time is coming to an end. There's so much more we could talk about, but um, where can people find out more about your book, Valor? Uh, on my website, markleegreenblatt.com. Uh, and one very cool feature about it, which I invite everyone to, uh, to use, is uh, I have set it up that folks can go on and email directly with the heroes. So they can email... You know, the guys that we talked about, Mike Waltz, uh, Chris Choe, you know, all the folks we talked about. And, uh, for the, there are two of them, James and, and uh, Chris Kyle, passed away since they returned home. But folks can email their families. Uh, and what, you know, I would invite people to reach out and share their thoughts about hearing their stories. And, uh, you know, feel free to ask questions or even if they just want to say thanks. Uh, these are great guys. And, and I know they would want to hear from people. Uh, and, and, you know, I think they'll interact. Um, so I would invite you to, you know, go on and uh, shoot them an email and, and you'll probably get a, you know, probably get a response. That's awesome. Mark Greenblatt, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. This has been great. 
Our guest today was Mark Greenblatt. He is the author of the book Valor, Unsung Heroes from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Home Front. You can find that on Amazon.com or bookstores everywhere. Also, make sure to check out his website, MarkLeeGreenblatt.com, and you can actually email some of the, the heroes that he highlights in his book Valor. Uh, pretty cool thing. So that's MarkGreenblatt.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And again, if you enjoy this podcast, you've gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to give us a review on iTunes or Stitch or whatever. That would help us uh, get the word out about the podcast and let more people know about it. So yeah, please do that. Until next time, stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 